Hi, I'm Talia Baroncelli, and you're watching TheAnalysis.News. Joining me in a few minutes is Dr. Asoka Bandaraj. She is the author of a recent book called Crisis in Sri Lanka and the World, which speaks about debt-trapped nations and how the Bretton Woods system continues to impoverish these countries. But first, if you enjoy this content, please consider going to our website, theanalysis.news, and hitting the donate button at the top right corner of the screen. You can get onto our mailing list so that you're updated every time a new episode drops. And also like and subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Analysis Hyphen News, and subscribe to the show on whichever podcast platform you're watching the show on. See you in a bit with Dr. Asoka Bandaraj. I'm very happy to be joined by Dr. Asoka Bandaraj today. She is an adjunct professor at the California Institute for Integral Studies. She's also previously taught at the University of Brandeis and Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and held tenure at Mount Holyoke. She's published extensively on colonialism in Sri Lanka, and her most recent book is called Crisis in Sri Lanka and the World. So thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Bandaraj. Thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it. Your book is very timely because it speaks about the current debt crisis in Sri Lanka, but it also contextualizes this debt crisis, tying it back to the Bretton Woods system and also to European colonialism, which uh, resulted in the impoverishment of society in Sri Lanka. And I think a lot of the colonial, or I, I would say mainstream um, portrayals of what's going on currently in Sri Lanka miss the mark and they don't really offer the context that your book offers. And, you know, the mainstream uh, narratives essentially say that Sri Lanka has not been following through on its commitments to the IMF or to the World Bank. And that's why it's in this um, in this predicament. But I believe that you have a much different take on that. So why don't we begin with why you think Sri Lanka is currently in um, a sovereign bond and debt crisis? Well, as you point out, the mainstream analysis is very uh, limited. It focuses on the uh, the COVID-19 crisis, the, the Ukraine war and its uh, ramifications and uh, local mismanagement, corruption, etc. that contributed to the emergence of this debt crisis in 2022, the, towards the beginning of 2022. And those are important factors, you know, that... Uh, played into the crisis, but uh, the crisis is much more long-term, and as you pointed out, it has to be seen in global context and also historical context, which is what I try to do uh, to show that uh, the colonial and neo-colonial policies, particularly neoliberal policies, have tethered countries like Sri Lanka into this debt cycle uh, and although they provide standby loans, uh, they are not meant to extricate these countries from the debt burden and to make them self-sufficient and sustainable in the long term. It is more to maintain the current financial and economic system. And debt is, plays a very important role in that. One thing which was really fascinating to me when I was reading your book was that you problematize this notion of debt diplomacy to China. So, you know, a lot of uh, think tankers will say that Sri Lanka is in debt because it's let China basically, you know, walk all over it and, and, and that China has invested in Sri Lanka, but as, as a result has been able to create a lot of debt in the country. But you actually point out that a lot of the debt is held by private asset managers such as BlackRock. And that a lot of the international sovereign bonds, which um, uh, which Sri Lanka has, are, are provided for by BlackRock. So, could you speak about that dynamic as well, and how the sort of unregulated asset management uh, financial system has contributed to um, the, the debt issue in Sri Lanka? Yeah, uh, the statistics are there, although they are not really used in the mainstream analysis correctly. That uh, of the total uh, foreign uh, uh, debt, only about 10% is owed to China and 48% is owed to 
uh, is due to private market borrowings, which is mostly international sovereign bonds, which means, and they are mostly EU and US-backed ISDs, uh, that more than 80% of the foreign debt is used to uh, Western uh, creditors. Uh, and that is something, you know, that is often overlooked. Of course. And perhaps another thing which has been overlooked in the mainstream narrative are the agricultural reforms which were instituted in 2019. There were certain agricultural reforms which were, I believe, quite ambitious and even positive, um, you know, trying to help smallholder farmers or to have a different sort of agricultural system, which wasn't primarily based on the export plantation system. But would you say the portrayal of some of these reforms and how these reforms contributed to Sri Lanka not being able to make good on its debt payments uh, is perhaps an inaccurate way of examining those reforms? Yeah, it's a very complex issue. Uh, there was uh, a shift to organic agriculture, um, which the Rajapaksa, Gotabi Rajapaksa uh, administration had promised, but it was done very quickly overnight in order to save foreign exchange to, you know, not pay out for uh, agrochemicals and uh, pesticides that are being imported. Now, organic agriculture is no doubt the way to go, but it's not something that you can change overnight because these small farmers, especially uh, rice farmers, had been encouraged to shift from organic agriculture to the use of pesticides, agrochemical fertilizers over time. And they were induced to do that through the neoliberal reforms since the 1960s. And now suddenly they were told to switch back to uh, organic agriculture um, overnight. And that did not work out. It sort of backfired. So that was used by certain uh, groups to condemn organic agriculture altogether. And now they're back to you know importing uh, chemical fertilizers and pesticides. So it, it was a very unfortunate uh, experience because something that could have, should have been uh, uh, should have happened over time, you know, got uh, enmeshed in this whole uh, debt crisis and uh, uh, debt relief issue. Well, maybe this is a good way to speak about the history of colonialism by using this issue of agriculture. Um, your book speaks about how under British colonialism in the 1830s, there was a different form of agriculture, which was kind of forced on the country, which was a, a plantation uh, agriculture. And so a lot of the, you know, other forms of cultivating the land um, by having different biodiversity and different types of crops side by side was kind of done away with. And this new form of agriculture in which, um, you know, goods and and certain things would be um, produced in order to export them to, I guess, to the UK and to other parts of Europe was implemented. And this had a, a terrible effect on the people who um, were living off the land and who were trying to enforce their customary rights by trying to live off communal land. So why don't we speak about, um, I mean, you don't need to speak about all the details of British colonialism, but I think this, this shift that took place especially in the 1830s with this plantation economy and how that led to some of the issues that Sri Lanka is experiencing today? Yeah, I think it should be seen in the context of the colonial experience in most countries around the world, the introduction of an import-export economy into uh, economies and societies that were essentially self-sufficient and were uh, focused on production of their essential food and other uh, goods and services that they needed. Instead, with uh, colonialism and the development or the superimposition of plantation economy and export production, the focus shifted towards these monocultural, large-scale export production, like in the case of Sri Lanka, first coffee and then tea, and this shifted the priorities. So the em emphasis was on producing coffee and then tea and then importing food, including rice. So this created this dependent model of uh, development 
for a lot of global southern countries and that trajectory has continued because the World Bank, uh, the IMF and the Western countries are definitely promoting, continuing to promote export production at the expense of import substitution industrialization, uh, which many uh, ex-colonial countries, in, including Sri Lanka, tried in the uh, immediate post-colonial period, but there were a lot of obstructions from the outside, particularly the global north, against these countries from becoming self-sufficient and developing their import substitution uh, production, particularly uh, in the areas of food and essential needs. I mean, would you say that there was a period, um, and I'm not speaking about pre-colonial periods, but I, I'm talking about more in the modern experience, where Sri really was able to subsist off the land? Would that have been, you know, in the period of its independence and in the subsequent decades, or is that a bit far-fetched? Yeah, I think this dependence uh, deepened gradually over time, uh, and there were periods where there were efforts to develop local agriculture, like through the Green Revolution and so on. Um, but that led to a lot of use of, uh, you know, agrochemicals, pesticides and so on, and that created other issues. But that also accompanied uh, land commoditization, which was a process that was started under the British. Uh, in order to develop plantation agriculture, they had to introduce uh, private property rights to land, so that land became a commodity. And this was, to some extent, mitigated uh, due to social democratic policies, uh, which were introduced starting in 1931, you know, which are called the Donamo reforms, where there were efforts to preserve the land uh, without being commoditized. So even today, 80% of the land is uh, held by the state the state with small farmers not have, I mean, they have rights to the land, but they don't have outright ownership where they can sell the land. But now there is an effort to uh, release this land to the market. And what would happen then is that many of these small farmers who are in, you know, dire economic uh, situation would sell the land and the land would then fall into the hands of uh, external interests, including transnational corporations, agribusiness, for example, for export production. So part of this whole neo-colonial project, uh, in addition to, uh, you know, getting control over other resources like the ports and uh, uh, energy and telecommunication industries is also to get control over the land. And in the case of Sri Lanka, it is not just economic control, but because of its strategic location uh, in the Indian Ocean, you know, in the uh, in the sea route, the east-west maritime trade route, there is a lot of competition on the part of uh, external powers to control the country, and part of that is also control over the land. Right. And you also speak about, you know, the earlier forms of colonialism, of European colonialism in Sri Lanka, for example, you know, the, the period in which the Portuguese were there, followed by the Dutch. But I think it was really the, the British who had this crown order saying that all unoccupied and uncultivated land was essentially crown lands. So it would belong to the British crown. And perhaps you could speak about how this really uprooted certain uh, forms of being, forms of societies which were subsisting in Sri Lanka and and how that, you know, just really destroyed their form of life. Yeah, uh, again, this was something that happened, you know, around the world because prior to the imposition of private property rights, there were hierarchical rights to land. You know, I mean, there were class of overlords who exacted tribute from uh, from the farmers, you know, uh, but the local people had access to land. Land had value only when it was cultivated. So the overlord class actually encouraged people to cultivate the land. But when the British 
came in and introduced plantation agriculture, they needed a lot of land and they claimed uh, that the common land, which was open to cultivation by uh, local producers, was crown land and the common people uh, uh, were asked to produce documentation, titles to land which didn't exist because the common land uh, would be cultivated and let as fallow land until subsequent uh, periods of uh, cultivation. So there was a huge uh, conflicts over land between the British and private interests and, and the local cultivator class. And I discussed this much more in detail in my first book, Colonialism in Sri Lanka, and the the instruments, the legal instruments that were used, like what was called the Crown Land Ordinance of 1848, and then subsequently the Wasteland Ordinance of 1897, because the land that was not cultivated was classified as wasteland that belonged to the Crown, which simply was not uh the conceptualization of land in the pre-colonial period. And in a sense, that project that was started under colonialism still continues with uh, new developments like uh, the, the so-called uh, MCC, the Millennium Challenge Cooperation Pact that was introduced to Sri Lanka, you know, Recently, although it was not signed, many of the objectives of that, like land commoditization, uh, opening the land market, uh, is is continuing, and dis and this could lead to displacement of local people from the land, uh, and uh, you know, uh, with the rise of agribusiness and control of land by transnational corporations and some local interests. Well, I wanted to ask you about the Donamore Commission and the Donamore Reforms of 1931. They were instituted by Sidney Webb, who was the UK uh, Labour Secretary. And from what I read in your book, they were able to um, create a system of universal um, suffrage so that people could vote and also essentially transferred some of the power from the British colonialists to local representatives. So created a sort of, I guess, local state council, if you will. Um, how did this address some of the land issues and, and you know, issues of the people being expropriated from the land and not being able to assert their customary rights to the land? Yeah, that's a good question because you have to see the Donamore reforms of 1931 in the context of the Great Depression at the time which led to both the United States, the UK, and other governments introducing more social democratic policies, you know, out of absolute need, uh, a, a more benevolent form of capitalism was, you know, uh, put in place. And some of that had its their ramifications in the colonies as well, because the Donamo commissioners appointed by Sidney Webb had more social democratic leanings. So when they introduced local self-government, uh, with along with the franchise, it empowered the the majority of the populace, which had no uh, right rights to vote or any uh, representation prior to that. So with that, with the franchise, universal suffrage, you know, uh, the local elites had to. Uh, meet some of the needs of people in order to get their vote. And that led to introduction of uh, a system of free education, a system of free healthcare, uh, which um, in the long term led to high quality of life index in Sri Lanka, making Sri Lanka a very unique place um, in the world, uh, especially in South Asia, in terms of standards of living, high literacy, uh, low infant mortality, low maternal mortality. So although economic growth rate was low, uh, in terms of the standard of living, Sri Lanka occupied an inferior position. In fact, I give the statistics in my book, had um, higher PQLI, physical quality of life indices, than even China or India or some of the other southern uh, Asian countries. 
And that these are now being uh, attacked by uh, the expansion of neoliberal policies. But just one more uh, point with regard to land issues, going back to the Donimo reforms, uh, one uh, important uh, piece of legislation that was introduced was the Land Development Ordinance of 1935, which uh, gave access to land to producers, but without full ownership right, not outright ownership, but access to land for cultivation. And that sort of uh, empowered uh, the producer class. And again, that is under attack now with the attempt to commoditize land, you know, which would take the land away from their hands. Why don't we speak about rebellion and independence in Sri Lanka? I don't think the West was so happy with that movement and neither was the United States. I mean, you speak about how uh, John Foster Dulles, who was, was he U.S. Secretary at the time, State Secretary? I think, you know, there, there are some documents that illustrate that the U.S. was potentially looking at overthrowing um, some of the, the the ruling elite in Sri Lanka because they were opposed to their, you know, I guess more communist and nationalist leanings. So why don't we talk about the influence of the United States in the sort of early years of Sri Lankan independence? And in particular, um, the uh, there was an official from the central bank who was appointed to also run the central bank of Sri Lanka. Right. You know, it's a very interesting history that is really not a part of the mainstream discussion or discourse. And I have a whole chapter looking at the transition from the classical period of classical colonialism to post-independence period. And that was a very vibrant period around the world where the ex-colonial countries were trying to decolonize and move on uh, parts of their own, part, development parts of their own, like, for example, African countries uh, experimented with African socialism like Ujamaa in Tanzania, uh, Latin American countries uh, experimented with import substitution. There was a lot of nationalization, uh, like, for example, the Suez Canal in Egypt and in Sri Lanka, too, there were a lot of efforts uh, to decolonize and go on an independent trajectory of its own. Um, but with the demise of uh, British imperialism, the United States sort of emerged as the primary dominant uh, political and economic power and from the very beginning of Sri Lanka's independence, the United States was involved in Sri Lanka, both politically and economically. And as you pointed out, one was the center bank of Ceylon, as it was called then, was not only first headed by an American, he was also the founder of it and was very much involved in um, advising the government uh, about internal issues like uh, growing political discontent and, you know, went to old elections, so forth. And also there was election interference. Um, you know, there was all, you know, because the Cold War was happening and the United States and the West was trying to prevent uh, a lot of ex-colonial countries from joining what they saw as uh, the communist bloc, even when these countries were not necessarily trying to join the communist bloc, but they were trying to forge their own parts of development. Like in Sri Lanka, it was called the middle part, more influenced by Buddhism. Uh, but it was perceived as a threat to uh, Western dominance. And there was also, to some extent, uh, Soviet involvement, but uh, it was much more uh, US and Western involvement. When the election interference we're speaking about, I think it was in 1956, and part of it was because of the opposition to an agreement that was reached between, um, I guess, I don't know if you would still call it Sri Lanka or Ceylon at the time, but... It was Ceylon at the time. It was Ceylon at the time, okay. 
So between Ceylon and China, in which Ceylon would sell rice to China below the market price, and then in return, they would charge um, a much higher rate for rubber. And so that was a way in which they could perhaps fund some of their own infrastructure developments. And I think uh, a lot of Western countries, especially the United States, saw that as a threat, saw that as Ceylon moving uh, closer towards China and that that would disrupt its own hegemonic rule over over Ceylon. Right, right. And that was uh, like 1952. And um, but the rubber rice pact was considered, you know, one of the the best uh, pacts that Sri Lanka had signed, which was advantageous to, to Sri Lanka. Uh, yes, so, uh, however, the because of Western pressure and so on, Sri Lanka did not have diplomatic relations uh, with China until much later. Well, what, why don't we speak about the 1950s and 60s leading into the 70s, because my impression is that the the party that was in power, the party which gained power in this landslide victory in 1956, was not the nationalist, the UNP party supported by the US, but was more of a nationalist socialist, not in the Nazi sense, of course, but more of, you know, having affinities to, I guess, um, Leninist views, or at least into to, to nationalist views of developing the country in a way which would be equitable for all of the people living in the country and to have, you know, workers' rights and unions. Um, but then there was a massive shift in 1977 and 1978 in which Sri Lanka came into its own, so to speak, uh, with a, a new constitution. But that was the period in which neoliberalism was really enshrined in mm-hmm. in the system. It was kind of baked into the system in, in the late 70s. Um, and I think a lot of the debt issues that Sri Lanka currently is experiencing can be tied back to 1978. So why don't we speak about what happened then, how the political system changed and how um, this, you know, shackling of Sri Lanka to this international economic system in which inequalities were basically exacerbated was really put into place then. Yeah, you put it very well. In the 60s and 70s, Sri Lanka, along with, you know, other ex-colonial countries, you know, really uh, tried to extricate themselves from this uh, colonial uh, pattern of development uh, which subordinated these countries uh, and and where the colonial uh, import-export economy uh, was continued. Uh, And there were sort of valiant efforts, not only with regard to creating a new international economic order, but also uh, a non-aligned political movement where these countries could... uh, develop on their own paths without belonging to either the West or the communist models, like during the Cold War. And in Sri Lanka in particular, uh, Sri Lanka played an important role in these all these efforts, although a small country it had a you know, very uh, dynamic leaders who were uh, instrumental in the non-aligned movement moving forward, as well as the new international economic order, throughout the United Nations Commission on Trade and Development, and also to keep the Indian Ocean as a zone of peace uh, and without Sri Lanka getting enmeshed in superpower struggles. So it was a time of uh, hope uh, and uh, for both Sri Lanka and the world for these ex-colonial countries to develop on their own paths. Um, but it was resisted uh, particularly by the West, and uh, with, you know, certain amount of sort of internal mismanagement and corruption and all of that, some of the programs towards, for example, uh, nationalization of foreign-owned plantations uh, and some uh, import substitution programs uh, face difficulties, not only because of internal mismanagement and corruption, but also because there were a lot of external pressures against them. So that's when, um, uh, you know, with external support, you know, there was this uh, shift towards a neoliberal model and a complete full-scale acceptance of the open economy. As uh, I quoted, the the president of the time said, let the 
robber barons come, you know, and uh, it be, uh, it was called the open economy. It was just thrown open to anyone, uh, any force that could come and uh, reap profit. And so gradually the welfare state that had been begun under Donamo reforms began to be whittled away and privatization of the plantations again started and also in privatization of the energy and telecommunication, telecommunication industries, so on and so forth. So this has continued from 1977 to date, but with the economic crisis, there's an intensification of the neoliberal model and with, uh, in concurrence with geopolitical rivalry over Sri Lanka. So it's not just the economic crisis, but it is also the geopolitical rivalry and the what has been referred to as a new Cold War that has played into essentially a takeover of Sri Lanka. Because if you look at what's happening now, it's the ports are owned by three external powers. Uh, the Hambantata port by the, by the Chinese, uh, the Trincomalee, the Natural Harbor, you know, essentially controlled by the Indians, and then also Colombo by uh, India, China, and and I think also Japan owns a, a terminal. Um, and then telecommunications, energy corporations are being privatized, including the Ceylon Petroleum Corporation, uh, which was created in 1961 when the uh, left nationalist uh, government nationalized the foreign-owned uh, petroleum corporations at that time, Caltex, so and so on, and created the Ceylon Petroleum Corporation, which is now being privatized again. And what about the foreign, the private foreign investments that have been uh, conducted in Sri Lanka? Did a lot of them also start around that same time period in the, the late 70s? And would you say that a lot of um, the current financial policy is in a way to secure sort of rights of these private investors to ensure that there's stability in the country so that their investments are protected. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that uh, prevails over the rights of workers and local people. And if you look at even, say, the tourism sector, you know, which was one of the major uh, sectors of the export production model. Um, there haven't been enough studies on that, you know, who really benefits from uh, tourism. Like in many sectors involved in neoliberal export production, a uh, lot of the profits go outside of the country. And I have lots of figures on the drain of resources, not just from Sri Lanka, but from uh, the so-called global south. And the net transfer of uh, resources and wealth from the global south to the global north rather than the other way around. Like I think between 2018 and 2017, as I point out in my book, there was a uh, 4.0 trillion transfer in terms of debt interest alone from the global north, south to the global north. Um, and you know, Sri Lanka has been very much enmeshed in this. Uh, and what is often forgotten is that a lot of the foreign exchange that the countries earned during the uh, period since 1977 has been from worker remittances. That is, ordinary people who are going to work in the Middle East and sending their remittances to the country, which has been become the number one form of uh, foreign exchange earnings even during the crisis, while the elite, including import exporters in Sri Lanka, have, through tax loopholes, uh, stashed their money in uh, outside of the country, some 38 to 50 billion. It is the ordinary workers working in the Middle East, including women domestic workers who have been sending money, remittances to to the country and also helping maintain uh, their families. 
And another sector is the manufacturing sector, the garment export uh, sector, which was, you know, promoted, you know, with the neoliberal reforms and Sri Lanka became a big garment exporter. And I have a lot of information about that sector also. Um, it's been very tightly controlled. The worker rights have been really uh, slashed and the wages are very low. And, you know, there's... Uh, in each of these sectors, whether it is the continuing plantation sector, the garment sector, the labor export, the tourism sector, uh, the local people, the, the labor, uh, rights have been slashed and uh, their earnings also have uh, gone down with economic downturns like, you know, during the, the COVID crisis, for example. Well, you know, we were speaking about the fact that a lot of um, workers in Sri Lanka have been forced to leave the country to work in other countries and to send remittance, remittances back home. But one thing you point out in the book is how the same European colonialists who were running the Atlantic slave trade were also importing a labor force into Sri Lanka in, I guess, the 1800s, like hundreds and thousands of people, uh, like a Tamil workforce was being um, imported. But now it's kind of the opposite as to what's going on right now where people are, are forced to leave because they can't make a living in Sri Lanka. Um, but why don't we shift now to the issue of climate? Because Sri Lanka, because of its you know geographical location and its huge, massive, massive coast, there's been so much coastal erosion. And I think it's unfortunately very vulnerable to flooding and to other environmental catastrophes and just, you know, global climate catastrophe in general has had a really horrible effect on it. So what do you think needs to be done in order to assist Sri Lanka? Should there be reparations? Should there be, you know, um, institution of loss and damage? You know, this is something that it was talked about in some of the recent IPCC uh, climate conventions where loss and damage is, you know, an issue. A lot of global South countries are, are speaking about this and demanding that you know, money be paid out toward them in the form of reparations so that they could better deal with climate catastrophes since they're much more vulnerable to a lot of these climate catastrophes. Yeah. Um, these again need to be, because we cannot separate the environment issue from the issue of protecting people and societies. So we have to have both the ecological and social welfare approach, you know, that are uh, simultaneously addressed. And some of the uh, discussions around debt for nature swaps for the global south need to be really uh, examined much more closely because uh, a country that is debt-ridden like Sri Lanka could be asked to protect its forests uh, in, in a debt for nature swap. And on the face of it, it's well and good but we have to also remember that people's livelihoods are important and that the onus of protecting the forests and the environment should not be placed on uh, the global south alone when in fact countries like Sri Lanka have had a minuscule carbon footprint. You know, their carbon emissions have been minuscule compared to the emissions of uh, the dominant countries, the the global north, the US, Europe, China, and, and so on. So I think we have to have more of a climate justice approach where the climate issue and the survival of people are addressed together. And also the Sorry to interrupt you, but what is the, the, the depth for nature swap that you're speaking about? Could you explain what that is as well as some of the mechanisms tied to it? Yeah, I mean, I don't know too much about it, but that's been talked about that uh, uh, in order to address the global climate issue, one uh, approach could be that the debt of some of the global southern countries be cancelled if they agreed to protect uh, natural resources, particularly forests. And on the face of it, it's, it's a good idea, but some local people themselves, not just in Sri Lanka, but around the world, have been questioning that, um, uh, should that be at the expense 
of survival of local people who depend on uh, forest resources and to some extent forest development. So that's why it has to be a much, much more uh, balanced approach. I'm not saying that forest protection is not important. It's extremely important in a place like Sri Lanka, you know, where the deforestation has been immense starting in the, in the colonial period, mostly starting with plantation development. But at the same time, there's also population pressure and the need to, uh, uh, for resources for uh, people's livelihood. So I think it has to be a more balanced approach. You know, it's not an uh, approach that is anti-technology or anti-development, but a more uh, balanced approach. And there are many organizations and networks that are talking about uh, localization and not just export production, but putting self-sufficiently and local uh, economic autonomy uh, and uh, survival of planet and people's livelihoods before profit-making, which continues to be the dominant uh, criterion despite the environmental destruction and massive social destruction that is going on. And how would you assess the environmentalist movement within Sri Lanka itself? You know, there were protests, for example, in 2022 against um, the prime minister at the time. But would you say that they were really influenced by this, you know, ecological consciousness that climate change is is something that's, you know, a, a huge issue in Sri Lanka and the world and in the rest of the global south? And this, um, you know, awareness of neoliberalism and how it's exacerbating the debt issues in Sri Lanka? Or was that not part of the... Um, yeah, I think not enough. I mean, there have been, you know, environmental organizations and uh, networks uh, fighting a number of these uh, uh, neoliberal and externally uh, funded projects, like including the Chinese port city, the Hambantota city, the uh, Millennium uh, Challenge Corporation Compact, so on and so forth. But if you look at the Aragalaya protest movement, which uh, emerged uh, in response to the massive economic crisis and the the ouster of the previous Rajapaksa uh, regime, there was not uh, sufficient, they called for system change, but for them the system change was the removal of the then president and the prime minister rather than an understanding or a deeper exploration of the roots of the crisis. Um, uh, in the global economic and financial system. And also there was really a, a lack of uh, a, a lack of an understanding of the environmental dimensions of the issue. Um, so I think, you know, both in Sri Lanka and the world, we have to put the environment first and be people as part of the environment uh, before profit and the whole domination uh, paradigm, if you will, you know, which is what is being pursued in spite of this uh, economic, uh, this ecological and social collapse that is going on in Sri Lanka and the world. And essentially, this kind of a takeover of a country, you know, which had very high quality of life, and now becoming a really impoverished country, where, uh, you know, country which had a fine education and free healthcare system. Now, some of the hospitals don't even have a single anesthesiologist because the doctors are leaving. Professional classes are leaving. It is uh, a real uh, uh, tragedy to see this country, you know, which was uh, an exemplary country in terms of the standards of living uh, in the global south, you know, becoming an indebted impoverished country and uh, people are in such a desperate uh, situation that uh, there is not much uh, voicing of alternative perspectives. And that's why I think sort of talking about Sri Lanka in the global context and in the international arena is really important uh, to bring these issues uh, before the global audience. How would you assess Sri Lanka's role geopolitically it's been neutral for many decades, but would you say that it's kind of 
in with the BRICS, so to speak, that it's maybe seeing its future together with countries like Brazil, India, China, and Russia, since the Bretton Woods system has only really continued its impoverishment? Yeah, um, many presidents in Sri Lanka even recently have declared uh, a neutral policy uh, for Sri Lanka, but because of the intense geopolitical rivalry uh, uh, over Sri Lanka, uh, Sri Lanka has become sort of uh, subordinate to several masters instead of one. Uh, there's so much pressure. Um, and instead of using this strategic position to its advantage to get what is needed for the country and its people, it's become sort of independent uh, and servile and uh, meeting the interests of several foreign powers, for example, China, uh, the United States and the West and India, which is an increasingly uh, dominant player uh, in the Sri Lankan case. So this is, you know, is, again, is not a new situation. As I point out, you know, Sri Lanka has had the longest uh, history of European colonialism in Asia. Uh, you know, starting in 1505. And there have been battles over the Trincomalee Harbor uh, among various foreign powers. And so the strategic location and the natural resources and uh, of the country without benefiting the people has also brought a lot of external uh, interventions which are not necessarily, you know, how... Uh, good for the country and of course you know the local collaborative class had played has been you know uh, is implicated in this as well because without local collaboration neither uh, classical colonialism or the neocolonialism of today could continue and one last very very short question before you go i think it's maybe nice to end on a positive note your book speaks about ecological alternatives and so perhaps you could sum up what you meant by partnership i mean you've alluded to this throughout the conversation but you speak about partnership as being a way forward of ensuring that there's respect for the land respect for people's rights respect for workers um, so perhaps you could speak about that concept of partnership and how that maybe provides a way out of the debt and climate crisis for Sri Lanka. Right. Um, you know, a lot of the language of partnership, democracy, human rights have been appropriated and misused. But partnership ultimately is about partnership with nature and having a different Consciousness, you know, I mean, I talk about transformation of consciousness because the dominant economic model, even the model that seems to be pursued by the BRICS countries, although they are presented as an alternative, is one pursuing the same uh, goals of uh, domination, profit, and power. And I, I think instead of that, we need one where we honor the needs for social justice and environmental sustainability, which requires us to live uh, with nature and instead of uh, an approach of domination over nature, you know, how we develop ways of living in harmony with nature. And I think there's a lot of research and uh, networks, you know, working towards that. Um, and for example, localization efforts uh, where bioregionalism, agroecology uh, are uh, developed over agribusiness and export agriculture, for example, and transition movement, which talks about uh, uh, renewable sources of energy and uh, organic agriculture instead of, you know, chemical fertilizer, pesticides, so on. So there are efforts in Sri Lanka as well, but I think it has to be part of a global effort because Sri Lanka is is not isolated island. <laughs> you know, it's very much a part of the global uh, global uh, uh, economic political system and uh, 
uh, ecosystem. So I think, um, you know, there's got to be more uh, consciousness that the crisis in Sri Lanka or Zambia or some other indebted country is not just an isolated one, which is the way it is approached. Uh, rather to see this as part of a systemic problem and that we need this systemic change, which means, you know, really questioning the dominant model driven by profit and domination towards something, you know, that um, upholds uh, harmony and interdependence, which means ultimately uh, people and social movements, you know, working together to bring that uh, transformation of consciousness and uh, putting that into policy. Well, I think you made an excellent point by saying that the approach of the BRICS is not really an alternative because it essentially uh, pursues the same capitalist profit making. And that's not something that can help the world get out of, uh, out of the current uh, climate catastrophe in which it faces itself. And, you know, a real alternative would be something which is inherently anti-capitalist and which is distributive and also respectful of the world and, and, and the climate and people which in, inhabit this planet. So Dr. Bandaraj, it was really great speaking with you today. Thank you for taking the time. And I highly recommend your book, Crisis in Sri Lanka and the World. For anyone is interested in the legacy of colonialism and how these issues continue to impact countries in the global south struggling with debt. And I hope to have you on again in the future. And thank you for watching theanalysis.news. If you enjoyed this content, please consider donating to the show by going to theanalysis.news and hitting the uh, red button at the top right corner of the screen. Get onto our mailing list and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you watch the show. You can also go to our YouTube channel, The Analysis-News, and like and subscribe to the channel. Thank you so much again, Dr. Bandaraj. It was great to have you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Italia.